five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Space biotech. Does it get any more bleeding edge than that? I mean, it's the intersection of two of the most important deep tech themes right now, space and biotech. And I think the potential is massive. Don't forget, the life sciences sector is one of the biggest industries in the world. Furthermore, we have known about the benefits that microgravity brings for potential biotech applications for a while, because we've conducted so many experiments already on the International Space Station and even back on the Space Shuttle. It just never made any commercial sense to then turn these experiments into businesses, because space was too expensive. Until now. Which is why we will do an entire sub-series of episodes dedicated to space biotech. This is the first one. Ken Seven is the chief scientific officer of Redwire, the American space holding company. Before that, he worked at the US National Lab and for a long time in the pharma industry. So he's a perfect first guest for our new sub-series on space biotech. Enjoy. My name is Raphael Rodkin and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. And just some final things before we start the episode about ourselves. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. If you want us help, expand our work, you can do so and support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. And we'll also put that link in the episode notes. And lastly, you can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Hey, space enthusiasts, welcome back to the space business podcast. And as I said in the introduction before the episode, this is the first one in a new sub-series specifically focusing on the huge potential, in, in my view anyway, of space biotech. And I'm very happy to have as a guest today, Ken Saven from Wetwire. Welcome, Ken. Hi. Thanks for having me. No, it's a pleasure. Ken, I've always said you're the chief scientific officer of Wetwire, but can you expand a little bit on that? What, what does it actually mean? What, what do you do for a living every day? <laughs> That's a great question because it isn't the job that I actually got hired to do. The job has changed since I have arrived, but I, I do direct the science for the organization for the most part that's specifically directed towards doing science on uh, ISS and developing hardware to enable that. That's really uh, kind of our area within Redwire. At the same time though, uh, my job is also to be kind of the chief product officer for a lot of aspects of the company, to look at things mm -hmm. that we're doing, potential products that we offer, and understand who the customer is going to be, what they're really looking for, and maybe how to develop through products for customers who may not 
you know, just as uh, we've talked about in the past, may not really understand what space can offer. Mm. Can you maybe give us some, obviously, you know, non-confidential examples of, you know, specifically what, you, what you're doing, what you have done for customers, like what the customers want to do in space, uh, why that's helping them in their business, you know, how you're helping them with hardware and other services? Yes. Yeah, so um, first of all, uh, an example of something that uh, we do and we're actually spending a lot of effort on uh, is developing systems that will enable the ability to produce tissue in space. Mm. It's a it's a bigger program because we start all the way back from generating stem cells all the way through to tissue printing and develop hardware that enables all that work. But at the same time, we're thinking about uh, the commercial applications. What? How are people actually going to buy mm. or use our product and what are they good for? And then you have to hunt down the customers for that. So in that case, one of the uh, target areas that we look at as being a viable commercial product would be the uh, production of organoids for testing in the pharmaceutical industry. I think it's uh, has real potential. In fact, I was just uh, um, at a conference at the American Chemical Society conference uh, this last week. And uh, one of the last talks I went to, they were talking about a cystic, cystic fibrosis model. And in fact, mm -hmm. they have no good animal models for that. So mm -hmm. they have they are totally reliant upon in vitro models, so, you know, cell based models for that. And I think that's a, an opportunity for us to develop uh, solutions that enable people to get more accurate results from their tests on their Mm -hmm. uh, you know, preliminary assets, uh, but also to get results faster. And mm -hmm. of course, doing things with stem cells, you can use human derived stem cells, which uh, human cells will most likely be better models for certain disease states than animal models would. So that's kind of the, the, the way we approach it. We look at how, what is the customer really trying to achieve and how can we help them? What is the benefit of doing that work in space? And there's uh, support supporting evidence that says that uh, generating uh, organoids or larger tissue constructs in space have a benefit from being uh, generated microgravity. They tend to hold their form, be spherical, and uh, behave more like they would uh, inside um, you know, a person, inside the body. Uh, and then we go out and we try to hunt down those customers and actually engage them either um, as this and would you buy it and what we pay for it. But more, more likely than not, we engage them to help us develop the models so that they actually get to develop the product for themselves and are more likely to buy it. And it's more likely to be something that would be of interest to others. So that's the kind of the product side. At the same time, though, we spend a lot of time and effort on the hardware understanding what it needs to be able to do to be successful and then setting up the testing or the development of that hardware so that it can meet the requirements. Okay. So there's, there's quite a few things to un, un, unpack here. I'm happy you already started answering. Some of my questions would have been like, why would you want to do that? In space. So actually, let's take a step back first. So because we're we're non-technical podcasts, I want to make sure that, that people follow here. So we're talking about tissues in space. We're talking obviously about human tissues, right? So these are human organ tissues like like liver or or or, or kidney or cardiac or something else. And these are basically being used as an alternative to animal models. So animal models, I assume that's standard stuff like um like mice and zebra fish and uh, worms yes. and of course all, all the way up to um to macaques to to monkeys. Yes. Correct. Yes. 
Yes. Um, even though monkeys may look like uh, little people, they aren't little people, right? They don't behave the same. And there are uh, specific examples where people have used baboons, which would seem to be very close to the human and mm-hmm. never made it to market because they failed in a study with um, a baboon. And yet the uh, problem that the baboon had is one that would not happen in a human. So there's there's issues, right? Models, all models are flawed. Some are useful, and it's coming to grips with um, how you're what the model's telling you and what it means. And um, the better model you have, and the uh, the less expensive it is, and the faster it is, the better off you're going to be. So uh, so that's from that side. Now, on the tissue side, just like you said, you know, ultimately you'd want to be able to to make something like a liver, right? That would be like uh, doing organ mm. transplant type work. The reality is we're a long way off from that, N- not only technically in our ability to do it, but also just from a regulatory standpoint mm-hmm. and getting uh, through that. So we have to consider that we don't maybe have 15 years and we want to start doing something that can impact the market and help pharmaceutical companies deliver to patients in the nearer term and even generating uh, tissues as models or small patches um, that lead up to generating full organs is something that we've looked at. So we've generated uh, heart patches, so very small pieces of tissue that could be used mm-hmm. as a patch on a heart. And uh, right now we're uh, running a project uh to look at a meniscus. Can we actually print a meniscus, which doesn't have as much Mm -hmm. vasculature or cellular structure as um, other materials? Um, But those are, you know, we're starting. This is where you start and where you build into these things. I'm just going to open a a quick bracket for our listeners here, because I think uh, my listeners are aware that I uh, usually run a space venture capital fund. Some people, but not all may be aware that I'm also a co-founder of a company called Prometheus Life Technologies, which actually happens to do exactly what you're describing, which is growing human tissue in in microgravity. So it's a subject that's, that's very dear to my, to my heart. So, so bracket closed, but it's very interesting. You're basically describing the, the two big use cases here, right? One is in the uh, preclinical pharma testing. And then the second one is essentially, I would call it um, regenerative medicine, right? Whether that's a, yes. a full organ or or, or or other sort of you know spare parts for the body, so to say, casually. Yeah. Yeah. So, so also to open up and, and be honest with everybody, I'm from the pharmaceutical industry. So a lot of the things that I look at as being interesting and uh, beneficial to the market in general, I'm skewed because I'm looking at it from the standpoint of a, a pharmaceutical chemist. So uh, another area that we're very interested in is in the production of um, of the active pharmaceutical ingredients for drugs, uh, the form of those, and uh, has been shown through a number of studies dating all the way back to uh, Skylab that forming mm-hmm. crystals in space, you generate generally larger, more ordered crystals, and that the crystals in each batch tend to be very similar to each other. There's uniformity batch to batch. And that's something that in the pharmaceutical industry is extreme significance, is being able to make crystals of um, a consistent size and shape. And uh, many drugs have failed for issues related to their crystal form. So that's another area that we've really focused on. And again, this is me coming from the pharmaceutical industry, but there's applications well beyond the pharmaceutical industry for uh, Mm -hmm. crystal Mm -hmm. production. 
Can I just um just staying on the on the on the crystals, right? Why is the uniformity so important? Is that to so, so that the, the 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 for the efficacy of the drug, or why is the uniformity of the crystals so, important? So that's a great question. So there's a couple of reasons. So first of all, the form of that the crystal form has an impact on the uh, the way the drug is taken up in the body. Mm-hmm. So um, the form has to be consistent pill to pill so that we know that each pill, the first one made on the line, the last one and everyone in between will behave exactly as they were designed and tested in the pharmaceutical, you know, in clinical trials or preclinical efforts, because you want to be, you want the physician to be able to look at a person and uh, make a, a guesstimate as to how much to dose that person and understand what the impact will be on their body. So, um, That's part of it. The other part is in the manufacture of those products, you want a process that you know will deliver the same product every time. And making a crystal uh, in the pharmaceutical industry helps you just from the standpoint of being able to isolate it and being able to uh, really understand that you have the right compound in the right form ready to be used in in the way that you're uh, expecting to use it. So there's uh, some complexities there, but over time, uh, one of the, in especially for small molecule crystals, one of the most common approaches has always been to um, make crystals where you could, because they're so easy to understand and isolate. Uh, and on a routine basis, know you're making the same thing every time. And just to take a step back and make sure I also understand, and of course, my main background is not in biology, even though I love biology, <laughs> this is what, what we've been talking about so far is substantially about actually producing these crystal-based drugs under microgravity, right? Because I could also imagine that, you know, when I think about designing new drugs, right? And the way I understand it is like you mentioned small molecule drugs, right? You basically want to design a, um, well, a new compound, right? A molecule that, that binds very nicely to whatever it needs to bind to, right? And so I could also imagine that the crystallization here could be helpful in terms of generating a really clear model to understand the binding side. Okay, so yeah, you are absolutely correct. In fact, most of the crystal generating work overall was protein crystal uh, generation for, and they call it structure determination, for understanding the structure of the protein that you're targeting. I would say of all the crystals made in space, Uh, For the purposes of research, probably 80% leading up to uh, 2020 uh, were all done for that purpose. That was what people were doing. And what we're talking about here is um, not worrying about the structural identity uh, at the molecular level, but just understanding the crystal itself the form that all the molecules come together and stack in Mm -hmm. um, for the purpose of of dosing. But you are correct. In the past, structure determination was a a major effort and space was utilized again because they made larger and more uh, perfectly ordered crystals. But the fact that crystals were the same size and shape in each batch didn't matter to people because they would just pick Mm -hmm. out the best one, bring it Mm -hmm. back down to the earth and go to a beam line, a, a special type type of laser x-ray that would fire a beam at that crystal, it would hit the crystal and diffract into a pattern. And Mm -hmm. then a computer can 
mathematically deduce based on the pattern where all the atoms are. And, mm -hmm. and uh, this new effort is to look at crystals for the sake of building a pill, essentially that a patient mm -hmm. will take. And um, there is, uh, there's, like I said, many examples where crystal form has been uh, a major uh, difficulty or caused significant trouble in the production of pharmaceuticals. And being able to make a, a crystal in a uniform way and do it again and again is extremely important. Now, I've got to add a point here, which is, I don't think we're going to be making um, pharmaceutical crystals in on scale in space, right? You're not going to take tons yeah. and tons of material. Um, I was going to ask about that because so if you're, I mean, again, this is sort of my sort of more lay opinion on biology or lay view of biology. So if, uh, I assume this is basically about protein-based drugs, right? So on the one end, I mean, I guess probably the most famous one in the world would be insulin. I'm just going to guess that because that's so commoditized, I'm guessing that doesn't really make sense to produce in space. Whereas you have something like certain monoclonal antibodies, maybe it does. Right. So even for the monoclonal antibodies, because of the scale, it I still do not believe it makes sense to grow those crystals in space on scale. But an interesting study was executed by a group at Merck. And what they did was they took um, a very profitable antibody Uh, Keytruda, which is a drug that is uh, used, that's its uh, probably its marketed name in the United States. I'd have to think about what its uh, its true name would be, but it's um, a mono, it's an antibody that is used uh, as an oncolytic for the use for treatment of cancer. Very successful, a very effective product, and it's probably making close to $20 billion dollars a year in revenue. Wow, that product when it's made. And uh, and delivered, it's actually a mixture of crystals. And the guys at Merck really tried hard, I am sure, to make a single crystal. Because when you make a mix of crystals on the production side, that you have to make that same mixture every time. You have to be, and you have to show that you're making that same mixture. Because that one is the one that was tested in the clinic, and we understand how it will behave. And Uh, back end, it's a mixture and is delivered as a suspension of crystals to patients. So it's a, a mix of crystalline material in solution, and it is given as an IV dose to patients. Um, you have to use more solution to make sure you're getting all the crystals in to the patient. And that requires them to go to a clinic. And uh, so uh, uh, individual at Merck thought, well, shoot, what we've noticed from growing crystals in space is they're bigger, better ordered crystals, but batch to batch, they're all the same. They tend to be uniform. So we wondered if we took Keytruda into space and crystallized it, if it would make a uniform single crystal. And mm -hmm. they did. And it was, in fact, a single crystal and one that uh, from what I read and they they published this work it, it to based on what I read, uh, it's a new crystal, one they had not seen before. And so that's half of this story. You could make a new crystal and they could make a single crystal. But to make it even more interesting, they were able to take that crystal, bring it back down to earth and use it as a seed to grow other crystals like it. So new crystals on the ground based on that. So now you don't have to bring tons mm -hmm. and tons of material. You can just, you, you know, take a, a thimble full bring it back down and then use that to expand to a very large scale on the ground. Yeah. 
So a couple of points on that. First, I just want to make a point to 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 our listeners, right? You mentioned you mentioned that this this specific drug, uh, Catruda, I think you mentioned Catruda, the yes. name. Catruda, yeah. Twenty billion dollars of revenue. You, you said you thought per annum, right? The entire space industry is estimated by some sources currently around four hundred billion dollars. Then quite a few people think there is double counting and that maybe it's actually like half that. So if it was $200 billion, one drug would be 10% of the entire space economy. This is the reason we're talking about space biotech here, because I mean, the potential could just be huge. It's a huge target. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay, so bracket closed on, on this point to, to our listeners. What I'm curious about, so um, this, so Merck with Katruda, was this something where they came to you guys and they thought about it themselves? Like, hey, maybe you should try this in space? Or is this something where you had to nudge them? And this, of course, is a general question I want to make. It's sort <laughs> of like, how, how pervasive is like the awareness of space and its potential benefits in the in the pharma biotech industries? Yeah, so um, they, so if, if it, in a perfect world, they would have uh, come out of, of nowhere, right? Just said, oh, I wonder if we could do this. But in fact, mm -hmm. the, the guy who was the lead for this effort, uh, Paul Reichert, he actually was a, he's a, uh, a crystal grower uh, at Merck, and he had been doing uh, protein crystal growth on, in space for over a decade. He's been doing it since the shuttle days. And he's one of these people who was doing this for structure determination, as we had talked about previously, mm -hmm. and I noticed the trend that people were making larger, more ordered crystals, but they were uniform. Well, for, for all, you know, most other crystal uh, people generating crystals for structure, the fact that they're uniform doesn't matter. But he was, for, he's from the pharmaceutical industry and he knew the implications. He knew what it meant. And he knew that on the, as well, that Merck had this product that could potentially benefit from it and had access to it. So it was really, um, in some ways, a very fortunate set of circumstances. Going to your point, mm. it is not the natural thing. We do not see a lot of pharmaceutical companies coming to us on their Beating own. Down and your saying, door. No, no we, space. the business development aspect of what we do is a major component because just like you said, a lot of people um, that you and I are trying to reach out to don't know about this, don't know about this opportunity or this is happening. There's many people in America who do not even know that there is an international space station, right? That's mm. so, um, but what we do find is, especially on the technical side, when we approach pharmaceutical companies and find people within, which is part of what I was doing, for example, at the uh, American Chemical Society national meeting this week, is that when you explain to them these opportunities, they will, they're, you know, like, well, how do we do it? How would we do that? Or how much would it cost? But you find that they are interested. And I would also say culturally, um, many of the scientists are fans of things like Star Trek or Star Wars. And when mm -hmm. they see that they have an opportunity to somehow get engaged in the space community, they're more than happy to do it, right? And, and our company, like other companies, will invite people who are our principal investigators to NASA's uh, Kennedy Space Center to see a launch. Mm, oftentimes, a launch <laughs> they're right. Oftentimes, they actually have to come down and set up their experiments. And in that case, they get a special pass, they get to go on base, and um, and they get to, you know, really be a part of it, handing their hardware over to the people wearing the uh, white outfits and then, you know, them placing it into the, um, uh, 
you know, into into the the rocket to to get ready for launch. It's things like that that they get to be a part of, and I think it has it's um, a significant effect on them. Right, something that you know they've always wanted. To, you know, pe- being part of NASA is a dream for a lot of people, um, but one that only a select few actually get. And this is a way for them to participate. Yeah, because it's really not easy, right? In a way, you're trying to bridge sort of two different universes, pun intended, <laughs> which, are, which which are historically quite separate, right? There's sort of the pharma biotech universe and it has its own community and the people went to like similar schools and have similar experiences. And then you have the space community and that's like its own close community. And you're, I guess, one of the few people really in the world who are somewhere in between and you can have you can act as something like a trojan horse i guess going to like going to like a pharma <laughs> conference and like suddenly talking about space right no that's it that, yeah, that is it exactly and it's um um it is it's a shocker for people i think you know it's not something that people think about but it is right now i think the most important thing within the community the most important new effort within the space community that is happening right now which is the the move towards industrialization of uh, the space program so beyond companies trying to make rockets or satellites and all the other devices that enable that it's going towards well what it's not enough to say that we're going to uh, send a man to the moon and safely earth it's we'll get there and, and is there a way that we can, as a uh, as a people, benefit from that effort beyond you know the exploration side? So that is mm-hmm. uh, becoming a much bigger deal. So yeah, it is still an oddity me going to this conference and talking to people, and every time you know people look at my badge, you know what's red wire, and you explain it to them. There, yes, yes, it's they're, confusing they're like, for this, them. This must be some biotech startup that I haven't heard of yet. That's right. That's right. That's right. But. Once you draw the connection, I have been at conferences uh, where uh, people have come up to me and said, hey, I do have a problem. And this, and it's it is related to the effect of gravity on, you know, some uh, material that I'm making. And what would it take to run an experiment to see if I could solve my problem uh, in space? I would say that there's stepping stones to that. A lot of times the things that we do are focused on people using gravity to understand their system. They're not necessarily going to go make something. Mm. They're just using it to say, hey, is gravity what is causing my problem? And when I was at Eli Lilly and Company, uh, my my previous employer, uh, and when I was in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, we ran five experiments on station, and they were all committed to that, to understanding things that we were doing in a new way and thinking in a new way. But I think things have gone beyond that. And we're now getting to the point where people are starting to ask serious questions about what are you going to make in space and um, how are we going to build a business around that? Just, just coming back or finishing up on sort of this you know, challenge of disseminating the message for the lack of a better expression in, in pharma and biotech. I mean, did you see any sort of like positive trend though? Because intuitively I would have thought, I mean, there's space, but it seems like there's actually quite a few sort of, um, what can I say, deep tech type changes going, happening to the drug development process, right? I mean, space is one of them, but you also have artificial intelligence. It seems like the industry has no choice but to get more open-minded in general. And then maybe as a side effect, that's going to help us from the space sector as well. Yeah, I think um, so. There, there are a lot of major changes 
First of all, I think there's aspects of the pharmaceutical industry that have not changed and probably won't change. Pharmaceutical industry is a very conservative industry, right? Yeah. Uh, they For good they have to be. For good reasons, exactly. Yeah. For, um, uh, and there are some aspects of what they do that are not only done because they are safe, but because they're reliable and uh, proven, right? And uh, a lot of times it just isn't worth taking a risk to do something boldly new, let's say. At the same time, though, there are major changes that are occurring. And you can see that in just the um, ratio of biologic products that are coming out versus a small molecule pharmaceuticals of the past. The ratio is changing year after year. And that's for good reason. Technology has enabled us to develop these new types of products. The new types of products have been shown to be extremely efficacious and safe and um, very directed products. Um, so, so things are happening. And you also see just in the, the people coming in, of course, there's a lot of young people coming in and they bring in their new approaches, just like you were saying, the ability to use artificial intelligence, or I would say even a bigger uh, play has been the networking, the ability to connect people across mm. the globe who can work together virtually even though we've had you know tools for doing that for many years the population that is moving into the industry now it's just how they work before we had to be taught how to use uh you know some team system or zoom or what have you but these kids come in and they've been playing on minecraft since they were little kids working on mm. building things with people in different cities you know and doing it seamlessly right uh so so i think there's a lot of changes that are occurring and just like you said i think Leveraging our access to space and uh, microgravity specifically is just one of them. And uh, that's also uh, becoming a bigger uh, piece of the equation for a lot of reasons as well, right? The uh, governments are putting more money into it. The cost of launching rockets is coming down with new approaches mm -hmm. and uh, more frequent flights. Uh, you can see that the um, astronaut core is slowly changing. When, you know, it used to be they were fighter pilots, mm -hmm. they, you know, these yep. were people. Um, and now you're starting to see more and more scientists becoming a part of these missions. And I think you're also starting to see um, countries that weren't, you know, the, you know, the U.S., you know, astronaut, you're starting to see other countries coming in. So, well, we want to have our piece of this and, and we want to contribute an astronaut and pay for that. Uh, and I think you're going to start to see that have an impact as well. So there's a lot of changes. Mm -hmm. And as from, from being kind of on the inside to now being mostly on the inside of this industry, I tell you, it is an extremely exciting time. So many things mm -hmm. are happening, so many changes. And, uh, you know, we've the space station is now, you know, going to be reaching end of life in the next mm -hmm. six 20, years. 30. Yeah, 2030, mm -hmm. give or take. Um, but there's already talk of the next stations and what mm -hmm. they're going to do. And so a very exciting time. Mm -hmm. I want to pick up on, on one thing you said in the middle, which is the cost coming down to access space, which of course is sort of arguably the key driver of the entire space sector. 
But I also want to make sure in case people are listening, hopefully from the life sciences sector, because maybe there are some, you know, younger biotech entrepreneurs, earlier stage companies listening, they're thinking like, oh, what, what, what Ken is saying here, that that's fine. You know, like Merck, Merck has so much money, of course they can go to space, but I can't. But that's actually not true, right? Because uh, I think you were in a previous um, career step also at National Lab, which is basically managing the um, US portion of the ISS. And there's quite a few grant programs and even smaller life sciences companies can absolutely go to space, right? Yeah, so um, uh, CASIS, they're the people who operate the U.S. National Lab um, portion of the ISS. Uh, they have their own funding mechanisms and uh, they have their own mission. So if you're aligned with their mission and you have a project that they feel is worthy, they're willing to supplement the uh, um, money to get that done. And even more valuable than the cash they give you to help you build your experiment is uh, they also, because of their arrangement through the federal government, uh, can put you on a rocket, which you wouldn't, you don't have to pay for the launch costs and mm -hmm. uh, get astronaut time, even return your, you know, your material to you. So that's uh, a valuable program. At the same time, in the last couple of years, NASA has been pushing to run their own industrial um, support mechanism, which they call the InSpa program, in space production applications is what that stands for. And it is uh, based on uh, trying to get industries to use the station for the development of programs that ultimately make mm -hmm. things in space for the benefit of people on the ground. So these both cases and the InSpa program are for developing, for the most part, industrial products that will come back to earth. These aren't part of the uh, mm -hmm. NASA exploration program or, or what have you. Uh, and then on top of that, there's also money coming in the United States coming from the National Institutes of Health. They'll fund programs. They've had mm -hmm. a, a number of projects around uh, tissue chips type things in the last couple of years. And uh, the National Science Foundation, in addition to organizations like DARPA and the Air Force and what have you. So a lot of organizations are, are looking at what can we do to develop science and space for the benefit of people on Earth in some way or another. And um, and I would say that's that is a big piece of it from the standpoint of uh, myself being a researcher trying to do work in space. That's that is what I see directly, but also indirectly and just as important. Uh, organizations like SpaceX have changed the way uh, getting things into space is done. Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. uh, dramatically changed the cost. I think at this, realistically, at this point, it's probably around $50,000 a kilo to get mm -hmm. things into space. And, you know, you have to count your hardware. But if you launch your hardware once and you can just fly cassettes and run them again and again, mm -hmm. um, it becomes reasonable depending on what you're making. Whereas before, you know, space shuttle days, it was probably mm. at least five times and maybe um, as much as 20 times that cost to fly a kilo of material. Mm -hmm. And now I mean, speaking of SpaceX, this is, of course, before we take into account um, a working Starship, which is a fully reusable vehicle, right? So the second stage, the other stage would come back every single time and could serve as a microgravity manufacturing or experimentation platform. Yeah, so you are, you are absolutely right. Yeah, their new format and the reusable systems it's just it's really a game changer it's uh it 
it was a remarkable thing. I was actually one of the first experiments I ran as an investigator, I brought my family to the launch. I was a SpaceX launch and it was a big deal. My experiments going into space. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember watching it. And then a whole group of people went back into the viewing. There was a room where you could watch on TV and they all went back in there and I was watching. And it was one of the first uh, attempts to land the um, first stage, the Mm -hmm. the booster on a platform out at sea. So we're all watching and you're seeing it come down and it just, it just lands. It dunk. It just landed on this platform. And I said, God, that, that looked fake. It really did. It looked totally fake. <laughs> CGI. Yeah, they should have done. I was like, I was saying to the person, they should have done it making that look real. Because it didn't even good. And a person in front of us turned around. He had a, a SpaceX t-shirt on. He said, that was real. That's And that's $40 million. That's my bonus landing on that platform. <laughs> So that's the other piece of it is in the past, it was hard to see other than like big companies like Boeing or Northrop Grumman or whoever, you know, NASA wasn't in it to make money. They were just launching rockets. But now you've Mm -hmm. got an organization that's launching rockets for NASA, launching NASA payloads, doing it for profit and trying to be streamlined and as fast as, you know, doing things as fast as they can for as little money as they can so they can make as big a profit. It's really changed the perspective, which I think is important. It's been a -hmm. great, a great thing. I think a great move for the American people. Mm -hmm. And so Starship, we're talking about really incredible payload capacities. I mean, somewhere between 100, 150 metric tons to lower orbit. And then hence, because it can come back basically of down mass um, uh, capacity demand. Uh, Also, and you were saying um, before, when we're talking about, about the, the, the protein-based drugs that you didn't think that that particular use case made sense to produce at scale. But what are some examples that you do think make sense to produce at scale in, in microgravity? So I think there's some things that um, that whole concept of growing seeds and bring them down isn't as applicable. I think there's some efforts and there've been, a, you know, for a long time, people have done metallurgy in space. And I think in those mm-hmm. cases, you're going to be, you know, doing a full um, either smelting or processing of materials in space. And that might be a, a viable thing, even just to do a single step mm-hmm. um, might be uh, something that would be a, uh, worthwhile. I think there's other products that people have considered that would have to be done there. And some of them, again, relating back to things we've talked about crystals. So I'll kind of stay with that whole kind of motif, but there are uh, certain uh, uh, arrangements of structures called metal organic frameworks. And these are uh, chemical reactions that form a new molecule. And then that new molecule crystallizes and part of it it tends to hold metals in the grid of the crystal in a specific arrangement in a, a specific mm-hmm. pattern and these types of structures uh, have uh because of the way they're set up they have uh small voids little channels that go through them and because they are the you know, at a molecular scale, you can fit molecules into those voids. They end up having a tremendous amount of surface area and can be used uh, to collect waste products from processes, industrial processes, mm-hmm. or act as catalysts. They have all these benefits. The problem is on the ground, we've never been able to make them larger than maybe a millimeter across. Uh, and in space, uh, the reason crystals tend to be a larger and more ordered 
is because first of all, they don't have the thermals that uh, perturb the solution that they're growing in. Mm -hmm. So it's pure diffusion that is, you know, bringing the molecules together onto the surface. And also because there's no gravity, when a crystal becomes a certain size on earth terrestrially, it will get to a certain size and it will fall to the bottom of the flask and it is essentially taken out of the process. But in microgravity, things don't fall. So mm -hmm. for the same reason, we should be able to make these metal organic frameworks larger and maybe even into certain sizes and shapes. And uh, that's something that would be done and processed in space. And the, the, other thing that makes this reasonable is that they have significant value, right? We're, mm -hmm. If something costs, let's say today, um, it costs $50,000 to fly a kilo of something. That means mm -hmm. for every kilo, if if all you can do is sell a kilo of something for $50,000, it just isn't worth it. doesn't work. Effort. Yeah. It doesn't work. Because so, you have raw material costs and probably some right. processing right. costs so as well. For, yeah. That's right. So you got to look for things that have significant value. In fact, the real right now, I call it the... Um, the platinum rule, which is it has to be worth its weight in platinum to break even, mm -hmm. just to break even. So all of a sudden you look at things like gold and, you know, gold barely cuts it. If you flew lead into space and turned it into gold, you mm -hmm. would barely make any money. So it's not even worth trying. Right. So mm -hmm. you got to go start looking for things that are of real value and pharmaceutical crystals. I think you could look at crystals in other industries uh, like agriculture or cosmetics. If you followed mm -hmm. that same seed approach, you, it would be worth it. Um, I think there's um, things like that that are important. And going back to your earlier point around people coming to me, there are people who come to me and say, I've got this problem. And um, I will ask them, what do you sell it for? Like, what is it worth? What's the market? Oh, mm -hmm. and the, oh, this is, these are our customers. This is how much we sell this material for. And uh, this is, and you know, I'll do a market analysis and find, hey, they sold uh, uh, 1,800 kilos of this material in 2018 at an average price of $3 million a kilo. I, that's it. I've wow. got a product. Okay. And and the beauty of that whole scenario is I'll go back to that person and hire them to be on my team. They're now mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in charge because they know it, right? I don't have to learn the background or figure out who the players are or find a customer. They've already figured all that out. They know who that is. So that's um, really what I do. So when I said I'm kind of the chief product officer, that is what it is. It's putting the whole package together. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is still, just as you pointed out, the significant challenge of... Um, what can you do that has, you know, that is, makes it a viable business proposition? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask you the difficult question. So we're now in 2023. So there's a lot of, if all goes well, there's a lot of additional microgravity platforms, which enable experimentation and production in space coming online the next few years. You mentioned alternative space stations. Redwire itself is involved in something called the Orbital Reef Consortium, which is one of the um, proposed space stations that's applying to what's called the, the NASA commercial LEO destinations, which is all about replacing International Space Station. And I guess those stations, if all goes well, could be online towards the end of the decade. So that's going to be all of these this um, capacity to scale on. If you had to take a guess on the on the life sciences side, what the biggest use case or use cases are going to be, what, what would you say? 
So, so as far as all the different platforms, and there's a lot of um, talk about that, um, mm-hmm. I think there is going to be a crude platform that's, that is going to happen. NASA is going to mm-hmm. pay for a big chunk of that. I think if you look at other countries, whether it be, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia or Japan or whoever, there are going mm-hmm. to be other contributors who are going to be involved contributing money because they want to have a presence in space. Mm-hmm. Um, there will also be platforms that are crewed temporarily where, where people go up for, you know, a couple of weeks at a time, set things up and mm-hmm. then sort of abandon that uh, system for maybe months before they go mm-hmm. back. <clears throat> and there is precedent for doing that type of thing. And then there'll be uh, free flyers, systems that go up, no, you know, totally mm-hmm. autonomous. And there's mm-hmm. benefits to that, right? There's systems that, um, you know, situations, especially industrial processes where you don't want a lot of people around you, it, mm-hmm. it would be potentially hazardous at the same time. There are very few totally autonomous processes for industrial products. There's human intervention is sort of built into these things and, and devices, even robotics are built so that, um, they can be easily repaired. You know, you need people to go up, even if they're not involved operations, they're there to, for maintenance and monitoring and what have you. So I think you're going to see a spectrum of opportunities. And for each of those, there will be certain, uh, uh, they'll be built to do certain things for certain situations. For free flyers, they may be a less expensive option, but one where the um, operations are very rudimentary. The mm-hmm. ones that are semi-crude will be more sophisticated, but can be left to run for periods of time with only minimal maintenance, um, but uh, may have more sophistication to them. And then the ones that are crude will be more sophisticated science experiments or production efforts that require significant intervention. Um, uh, so I, I think it's going to be fit for purpose, but it is going to come back to, you know, we've talked about this uh, sort of uh, financial evaluation. People are going to be mm-hmm. making those evaluations. In fact, they already are. People are already, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about what for that autonomous system, what is the process that makes sense to run and mm-hmm. how will we make money doing it to end to end things that have to be done on the ground, flown time and space to get things mm-hmm. done. Um, uh, so, I, so that's where we're headed. And I think there's a rush right now for people to run as much stuff as they possibly can on the space station before it's gone to prove out yeah. all these things, to set them up for proof of success. concept. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And so what is your guess if you have one for sort of the biggest potential space, uh, life sciences money maker in, I don't know, five or 10 years, <laughs> whatever. The yeah, well, so, so that's the thing, five or 10 years. I think you, you, it's not going to be a tissue therapy, right? Uh, you know, tissues for implants on people that it's just mm-hmm. not enough time. The mm-hmm. biggest ones that where I had to, I was asked, Hey, where, where are you going to put your money? It's going to be a crystal growing for industry. Some of it may be pharmaceuticals because there's uh, big options there, big opportunities, but I also see certain electronics can benefit from this. Mm-hmm. And I would also say we have to factor in uh, in the United States, we're definitely factoring in the fact that the U.S. government is trying to do a couple of things in the sort of near term. They're trying to bring industry back to America mm-hmm. and they're picking out specific areas that they think are significant 
where they need to make a play. Some of them are related to biology, some of the things we've talked about, a stem cell type of uh, research mm-hmm. and the products of that, um, but also uh, semiconductor manufacturing is a huge deal. And they're setting aside a large sum of money. And a lot of that money or a chunk of that money is going to end up devoted to things that are associated with um, doing work in space or enabling work in space. And you're going to see uh, people building businesses around that coming in and saying, I want to go uh, set up a type of a research facility for people to test their systems or develop systems in space. And that'll be their business. In addition to the people that are actually doing the development for products in space. I think that's, mm-hmm. that's, so those, if I had to, if I was coming in and saying, what am I going to do? That would, that would be it. I think at the same time, there's still a lot of money associated with uh, free flyer rockets, like people who mm-hmm. generate those types of systems and re-entry systems, right? That's one of the things that NASA has kind of come to grips with is that uh, SpaceX uh, Dragon capsules are, you know, those are returnable, right? They, mm-hmm. They're re-entry vehicles, but the Northrop Grumman systems are not. So mm-hmm. that means about a third of all the capacity is lost and they use it mm-hmm. for other things and it it serves its purpose but i think it made them focus on hey what are the systems that we have to bring things back if we're really going to be serious about industrial products made in space you have to have a way to get it back mm-hmm. yeah un- understood and agreed and and besides the big companies you mentioned there is fortunately now also a range of startups some well-financed like companies like VADA in the US uh, yes. or SpaceForge in the UK, which are working on down mass capable vehicle as in vehicles that can bring stuff back. But I just realized um, finishing up on sort of like the, the life sciences use cases, I, I we were sort of focusing on, you know, helping people heal, or producing stuff that directly heals people like, um, like drugs or tissue replacements. And I forgot to ask, what about, um, what about disease models kind of using space to understand diseases better, right? Because that goes back a long time, right? I think some osteoporosis drugs even were developed back or on the space shuttle or the space shuttle missions helped to develop them. Yeah. So, so, um, so, so uh, just so everybody knows there are disease states that seem to arise or similar um, issues arise when uh, astronauts or, or most any animals are brought into space. And it can be simple, small little things where we're understanding the biology in a different way. For example, when fish are put in a tank that has no bubbles, it's just completely filled with water, the fish mm-hmm. will come together and they will be at an angle to one another and they will immediately right themselves so they are upright to one another. And hmm. it turns out if you watch videos of humans in space, in fact, there's a funny video of uh, two astronauts doing an uh, interview and then another astronaut drops in upside down from the top. Mm-hmm. Um, and you will, if you watch that, you'll immediately feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And it's because it is where we have anxiety when things aren't exactly actually speak. Now that's mm-hmm. kind of a, a simple, small example, but there are more sophisticated issues. For example, astronauts immune systems tend to start to fail during long duration, uh, mm-hmm. uh, activity in microgravity. And there have been many studies trying to understand that as a way to understand how the immune system operates in people normally. At the same time, people have thought, just as you kind of alluded to, that maybe we can use that as a model. And uh, 
one classic example, as you pointed out, was uh, for osteoporosis treatments, both Eli Lilly and company and Amgen and others, I'm sure, uh, took products that were in their pipeline for treatment of either muscle or bone loss uh, to test them in rodents to see if they would build up their muscles or their bones would come back. And those are what the pharmaceutical industry would refer to as a no so you can you dose animals on the ground and they get a bit stronger. You don't know if it's because they went on the little wheel every day and and you know wheeled themselves. So uh, in space they don't uh, have the resistance. So any muscle building should be due to that. Now there's other complications with that, but that's kind of the thought. And um, I used to think it was pretty clear cut. Hey, it's a good model. It's something we can learn from. But as things have developed, people have come back and said, it may not be a good model. It may be a very different mechanism that is leading to mm. either a muscle loss or bone loss or um, the failing of the immune system. But I still think it has value in helping us understand those systems. So mm. from a fundamental research standpoint, there is value. NASA ha feels it has value, of course, because if you're going to send somebody to Mars, um, and they're going to fail the whole way there, you have to have a way to um, help repair that. And they go to great lengths uh, to have mm -hmm. astronauts exercise each day and take special mm -hmm. supplements and have a proper diet. Um, but mm -hmm. uh, I think there's other things we can learn about ourselves. I, mean, I think there there is value in, in that. That's for me has been the most amazing part of being involved in doing research in space is all the things I thought I knew and didn't mm. by, you know, even just how water behaves on its own, how mm -hmm. it interacts with itself. It's just a fascinating thing to see when you remove gravity, how other forces other than gravity take over and um, become dominant in the way water behaves. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's mm -hmm. some great videos. There's a, a fun video of Scott Kelly uh, making a glob of water in um, in on station and then uh, holding it in space. He has a little loop. He holds it there, pulls the loop away and the water globule just sort of hangs there and he sticks an Alka-Seltzer into it. And hmm. you can see how Alka-Seltzer in water behaves differently when there's no gravity than it does if you have it in a plastic cup on the ground. So um, a new, other forces have taken over. Um, adhesion, cohesion, mm -hmm. those are the dominant forces. Where on Earth, they are minor players compared to gravity. So I think there's a lot to learn, um, but whether or not they are using space as a model in that way, I think there's still a lot of debate. People still do value, but in what way it's valuable is still not totally understood. It's really quite interesting, right? Because, um, you know, humans have evolved on earth well at least over the longer course of history right we've settled uh, places with very different environmental variables right um cold places hot places and and, and so forth <laughs> wet places dry places but every single human ever born has evolved under uh, or yeah has has developed under 1g gravity conditions right so it's really it's really interesting to go away from the 1g and i wonder also kind of thinking about you know as we're thinking about potentially taking humanity to other places um that's going to present whole new, I guess, um, life sciences and, and medicine challenges, right? Can we, can we even like carry a, a baby to term under non-1G conditions and, and things like that? Is that stuff you're thinking about? Is there like, let's do like the fun stuff. You have like you know, a few minutes left, a few minutes so, left yes. here on the podcast. So like deep, deep space, sort of like life sciences in deep space, helping human exploration. Like, what do you think about there? Yeah. So, so 
um, it is something that we think about. You're, we're in the industry, so we have the chance to sort of dream about these things. You know, where, where are we headed? What are the things that we can do that will um, have an impact on humanity as we step out into space? As it, and uh, my, uh, my boss, the founder of, of TechShot, that was acquired by Redwire. Uh, mm-hmm. He thought about these things when he was a young man too, and actually developed an experiment to look at the development of chicken embryos, of eggs, um, at mm. different points in their development and the effect of gravity on them. And from it was a, a fairly simple experiment, but it's in some ways very profound. And the results he got were that if the egg is in the first uh, third of its development as an embryo uh, and it's in space, it won't come to term. It won't develop properly. Mm. They have to be developed in ground. So it goes back to your point. Hey, what if we, you know, are um, on our way to Mars and there is no gravity? Would a, a human pregnancy be viable? Right. Mm. It's, it is not, um, uh, it's not, nobody knows. And these are the types of things that we will start to have to think about as we move out there. It's very interesting. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I'm a much more practical near-term person, how I think about things. So for me, Mm -hmm. I've always been fascinated with the way toilets work in space, because no matter where we go... (laughs) We're going to bring those with us in some biological way. Needs. Or in yes. Biological <laughs> needs. So, um, and I've, it's very interesting to see how a toilets have been developed on the ground here, you know, terrestrially uh, with like the uh, Gates Foundation efforts to build solar toilets. And, uh, but we're starting to think about that in space. And that's something that, again, uh, my organization is involved in. We look at that as another piece of technology that we can help develop and uh, and deliver as a solution for people. And it's one that, you know, it is, it's kind of funny because you never see that. You watch Star Trek, you never, they, you've never seen a toilet on, never, on the pro, Yeah, they never answer that question, exactly. But it's a serious, it's a serious thing that needs to be understood and even just going back there was a one of these a private spacex flights and uh their toilet failed the four day inspiration four yes so Mm. right and it's going to happen so we have to we have to understand these things and uh so i'm interested in that and for me as a chemist it's a way for me to sort of say okay from as a chemist how would i how would i solve this how would we use this and then longer term, what will we do? And someday we go to Mars. You don't want to throw all the waste away. You want to be mm-hmm. not exactly like um, Mark Watney, Watney on uh, Mars, sure. but you want to, hey, we're going to have to start becoming very good at um, recycling. And then that has implications to us here on Earth, right? A lot of these things force us to think about ourselves and our situation here and what benefit we can derive from doing these things. Of course, there have been many technologies that benefited humanity that were either uh, developed for or a result of our work in space. And uh, maybe something like the toilet is something that will also have an impact for us. Well, you've, you've given the perfect segue to our traditional last question on a podcast. I mean, we talked about, you know, pregnancy and toilets now, and you mentioned Star Trek in the middle. The last question I always ask is about favorite science fiction. So um, I'm just going to assume you're a science fiction fan too. I mean, you, you mentioned the Martian there in the middle and Star Trek. What What is your favorite science fiction? So, so there's, I, there's kind of three that I look at. I, I like um, the Martian 
because it is close enough and in a way kind of real enough for us to look at and uh, kind of picture ourselves really being there, right? This is something that I think um, in our child, our children will be the ones that go to Mars. So it's, we're there and we're very close. And at the same time, I've always been a Star Trek fan. I look at that as being uh, where we, where we want to be kind of the, um, the beauty of a magnificent future for humanity. And at the same time, a lot of the technology that is talked about and maybe even used has become a reality, right? Mm-hmm. And our cell phones, I think have yeah. gone even beyond the communicator of the past. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But another one that I always look to for an odd kind of inspiration is uh, from the a series of science fiction horror movies, uh, the Alien series. Uh, mm. And it's the company that is in the background that makes all the hardware for um, they made the Nostromo, which is the big spacecraft that was in the first Aliens movie. They made the uh, terraforming units that were put on the colony in the movie Aliens, the second. Uh, and it's kind of an evil company. But at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, people have taken it to gone to great lengths to build a website for it. It has its own commercials. And it talks about how different divisions within that company work together to build these magnificent systems. And I can see similar things happening in the current space industry where companies are starting to form alliances to build upon each other's strengths to enable work that otherwise was really just science fiction just 10, 20 years ago. So that is, I, you know, I, I don't want to be the evil company. I want to be the good company. But I think <laughs> a lot of the the things that they talk about are, you know, the way things are going to get done. I had a conversation with somebody about that, about the first nuclear submarines where, you know, they, the Navy couldn't find uh, the right plumber. You had to find a special type of plumber. So they went mm-hmm. to industry and found the best plumbers in America to help them build those first submarines. And I think that's the same type of thing for you and I, we're going to the, I don't have to be the best metallurgist. I just have to be able to find that person and get mm-hmm. there into their industry. And that's what we're going to see happening more and more in the future. Terrific. So here's to being the, the good company and to helping serve like what I hope people uh, by now the end of the episode understand can be could be a very very significant in terms of size uh, space life sciences and, and and general in space manufacturing market so ken thanks so much for coming on it was a pleasure thank you rafael this is fantastic and uh, look forward to working with you in the future too same here thank you well that's it for another nominal episode of the space business podcast if you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell, or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.